0: Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cawthorn. If you'd like to know more about Living Water or if you'd like to drop us a note or if you've got a question or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now let's join today's podcast in progress. we are at question number five in our current series, the seven big questions, is Jesus really God? That question gets asked a lot more than we might think. I've had people visit my door and ask me that question because they come from a different denomination and they have a little different take on that than I do and we've had some interesting discussions about that. Uh, It's a valid question, like all these questions. It's one that we should look at, and for those of us who do believe that he is God, we should know why. We should be able to defend that and to have a ready answer for those who might ask us about that. Shane Claiborne, kind of a radical Christian, the kind of guy who decided, well, if Jesus tells us we're supposed to do this stuff like he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount— Maybe we ought to start doing some of that stuff. So he did. He gathered a bunch of clergy friends together, and they went out in Philadelphia, where he was from, and he felt that some of the laws they were passing at that time were unjust because they were aimed at kicking out homeless people from the parks in downtown Philly. So he thought, well, what would Jesus do? He gathered together with them, and they started going every weekend and having communion in the park with the homeless folks. And when they did so, they were breaking one of the laws because one of the laws that was the anti-homeless law was that you couldn't have any food in the park. So when they're having communion, what are they doing? They're eating and drinking. But nobody wanted to arrest them because they're having a religious observance as well. And they were getting to know their homeless friends. And then they started bringing their tents and sleeping bags And on these Friday nights, they would have communion, and then they would share together with some fellowship and have a little worship time. And then they would camp out with them, and they were sleeping in the park. Well, that was violating rule number two, because they'd passed no sleeping in the park. They were eating and sleeping in the park with these homeless folks. So apparently, it got a little bit rambunctious when they decided they were going to order out for pizza and have a pizza party one night. And the numbers had grown because the homeless people put the word out, there's free food in Love Park. Isn't that a great name for the park? Love Park. So they had a love fest in Love Park with communion, worship, fellowship, pizza, and then they were going to have a sleepover. And that's when a whole bunch of policemen surrounded everybody and arrested a whole bunch of them, including Shane Claiborne. However, when Shane Claiborne showed up for the hearing in front of a judge, Shane wore a t-shirt that said, Jesus was homeless. (laughs) And the judge looked over all the paperwork, he looked at Shane, and he readily admitted publicly, I didn't realize that Jesus was homeless. And then he said, let me remind the court that if it weren't for people who broke unjust laws, we wouldn't have the freedom we have today. That's the story of this country from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement. These people, those who were standing before him, are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. I find them all not guilty on every charge. Who was Shane Claiborne to these homeless folks? He was nobody when he first started showing up and just having communion with them. They didn't know him from Adam, but he became somebody special. Why? Because he got down into their world. He did life with them for a while. He represented something that they hadn't seen before because somebody was willing to advocate for them when they couldn't speak up for themselves, and he bought their freedom. Does that sound familiar? Why would Shane do such a thing? And why would he urge other clergy to do that kind of thing? It was so radical. Because Shane said, that's what Jesus did for me. And if I'm going to follow him, and if I'm going to be doing the things that Jesus did as he became God's love with skin on to show what God is like to me, I should be able to get into other other people's worlds and show them God as well. And that's all they were trying to do. It's a pretty good description of what Jesus did for us when you think about it. So in an attempt to answer this question, is Jesus God, I'd like to tackle these three basic points, these concepts. Jesus made claims that no human being could fulfill. We'll look at just one of them today. Number two, Jesus satisfied the penalty for sin that only God could satisfy. We'll see why that's true as well. Number three, Jesus became the final word spoken by God himself. Those three ought to show us that Jesus is, in fact, God. Number one, Jesus made claims that no human could fulfill. Mark 2, 1 through 12, we see that story that I love so much, and we see that Jesus claimed something that got him in trouble right off the bat. People were upset at him. He had been ministering on the northwest side of Galilee. This is the northwest side over here. Y'all are over there by Capernaum. And then he went across into the Gadarenes, and there was that man, Legion, because he was filled with numerous demons. He was off over there somewhere, hanging out next to the graveyard. And he cast out demons over there, and he was in the Gentile territory. That's when he had uh, cast into the pigs, and the pigs ran down and drowned. And then they got back into the boat came back over here to this side again. He was coming back into his hometown where he was staying. May have even been Simon Peter's house. We're not sure but he might have hung out there for a bit. And he was ministering to some people in a house and they had the kind of houses that were sort of open to other people and you could gather around and look in the courtyards and they gathered around. There was such a hubbub where he was teaching that day that there was no room for anybody to even get into the front door. But There were some friends who had a friend of theirs that was paralyzed, and they wanted to get this guy to Jesus because apparently they must have thought that he was something special, and maybe he would be able to do something about their friend's need. So they fashioned a gurney out of a mat, and four of those friends got one on each corner, and they went around to the side steps to go up onto sort of that deck-like upper roof there. And then they started doing a little deconstruction project, and they started pulling apart mud and clay and sticks and larger pieces of wood until they got a hole large enough for them to let their friend right down through the hole in the roof right in front of where Jesus was teaching and instead of rebuking them for putting a hole in his friend's roof (laughs) Jesus saw the faith of these friends who wanted to get their friend to Jesus and he looked at the man on the mat and said son your sins are forgiven. Now, there were some teachers of the law seated right there watching Jesus teach, and they were thinking to themselves in their minds, who does this guy think he is? Why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) They got it right, even though they didn't realize they were getting it right at the time. But Jesus, who knew in his spirit what they were thinking, even though they weren't saying it out loud, said to them, Why are you thinking these things? And then he decided he'd give him a little bit of a test. And he said, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to ask him or to tell him to pick up your mat and walk? Which do you think would be easier? Well, I could say to anybody, your sins are forgiven, sir. You're absolved of all guilt. But could I actually do that? And Jesus, just wanting to make sure that they understood that he had the authority to do the thing he had just done, said, and so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, he says to the man, pick up your mat and go home. And he does. He picks up his mat, and in front of everybody there, all these witnesses, he walks off. And what was the response of the crowd? They praised God. They were amazed. They said, we've never seen anything like this before. Pretty astounding story. And it shows me that God could do something that only God could do, and he did so in the form of Jesus, God incarnate. He made claims that no human could fulfill, and he claimed to forgive sins and backed it up by doing something supernatural just to show he had the power to do that. Second, Jesus satisfied the penalty for sin that only God could satisfy. Philippians 2, 6 through 11, listen to this as Paul tells us something that gives us a clue about who Jesus was and how he came from heaven and what he gave up in order to do that. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clung to or grasped. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Willing to be labeled a criminal for the sake of advocating for people who could not advocate for themselves. Sounds like Shane Claiborne a bit, only Jesus goes a step further. He's doing what he did to pay the penalty of sin. In verse 9, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when he uses the word Lord it's the same kind of label that you would give to God himself. Jesus is Is God. Jesus did away with the need for these temporary sacrifices as they used to have to do during certain festivals, like we'd read about in Passover. People would gather, they'd go to Jerusalem, they would buy the animals, they'd take them to the priest, and they'd have them sacrifices. Isn't it good that we don't have to do that again and again? But Jesus took care of that. He did so once and for all because he was the only one who could do that adequately. He was holy, he was perfectly sinless. And he was eternal. Those are the two criteria by which he could meet everything that needed to be met and pay the penalty of sin forever. So he did so once and for all time. His sacrifice is all we need. That's it. He was strong enough to be gentle. He didn't come down riding on a white stallion, whipping people as he went, wielding a sword. His methods were so different. He was the suffering servant. He says in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the verse that I could give to everybody who's had to work midnights and then they show up on Sunday at church. If you're getting a good nap, God bless you for coming to church anyway, even if you worked midnights. Some of you have worked in different industries where you've had to do that, and I think, isn't it good that God doesn't reprimand us for falling asleep? He says, no, come unto me, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in me. I read a true story about a guy named Richard Dunnigan who talked about the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus and between being gentle and being harsh because Jesus was constantly coming up against this legalistic harsh religion and he was doing away with that. Dunnigan writes, after their school carnival, my kids won a game and they won a wonderful prize four goldfish. (laughs) Lucky us. He says, So they come home in a baggie, so what does he have to do? He's got to run out on a Saturday morning and try to find a tank to put these fish in. So he goes to this one little pet store, and every tank he's looking at, even the smaller ones, ranged anywhere from 40 to 70 bucks so that he could put his free goldfish in it. <laughs> and then he sees in an aisle way back toward the storeroom a display model, a big 10-gallon tank, $5. Big sign, 5 bucks, and it's yours. And he thought, sold. He said it was filthy. It was really dirty. But it came with the gravel already in the bottom, and it came with one of those filters and the pumps. 5 bucks. He thought, hey, I can do it for 5 bucks with some elbow grease. And so he says, once I got the goldfish in there in their new little home, they looked so happy and they looked so cute. He said, but that was on Saturday night. (laughs) By Sunday, one of the four was kind of floating at the surface a little bit. By Monday morning, the second one had gone belly up. By Monday night, three of the four were gone, so he called in, you know, the cavalry, and he had some guy that really knew about fish because he had a big 40-gallon tank at his house, and he was a church member friend of his, and he invited him over, and he goes, well, what did you use to clean it with? (laughs) He said, some really good, strong cleanser. And he goes, well, there's your problem. (laughs) That was too harsh. The fish can't take that. You're not supposed to use cleanser to be able to clean the tank. And he said, I started to see the whistles and bells go off in my brain because I thought, okay, sometimes we try real hard to clean people up. And we use intimidation or we choose to use condemnation. We use things that all the Pharisees were using in their day, trying to clean people up from the outside. And really, Jesus says, no, I'm humble and gentle of heart. Take my yoke upon you. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll clean you up from the inside out. If you'll just immerse yourself in me, I'll pour all the living water you need through you by my Holy Spirit. I'll do the cleanup. I'm really grateful that we serve a God who showed us what he was like because he was both wrathful and loving. His wrath is poured out against sin, but his grace is poured out on sinners. And they both came together on the cross. What a wonderful Savior. Jesus became the final word spoken by God. Let me read this passage from Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2, both passages just the first 4 verses, and see if you can catch a sense for what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Christ. Long ago, this sounds like a Star Wars trilogy, but it's not. And far far away, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, and by the way, when he spoke through the prophets, the prophets, if they were quoting God, would say, thus saith the Lord. That's how you knew that this prophet was actually telling them the words that God had given them to speak. That's going to come into play in a few minutes, so hang on to that for a minute, all right? Verse 2, and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance and through the Son, he created the universe. You look at John chapter 1 and see that. He was with God in the beginning. Everything was created by him and for his pleasure. And then verse 3. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. If Jesus were not commanding that things would be held together right now, we'd probably be flying off the planet because there wouldn't even be gravity. I'm grateful that God is holding things together by His command. When He had cleansed us from our sins, what we celebrated at the Lord's Supper today, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And this shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave Him is greater than their names. He's being elevated The writer of Hebrews is showing us that he is exalting and elevating Jesus Christ to the same level as God himself because Jesus is God. There are the three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, but they're all God. Now, chapter 2 of Hebrews, first four verses. So, and this is the warning to us, this is the admonition to all of us as believers. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard. The truth about what? The truth about Christ's identity, the truth about the gospel, and why he came to live a perfect life, die the death of a criminal, was buried in the tomb for three days, rose again. That's what we first heard. Paul says, we have to be very careful to hold to that truth, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. Because God can't let sin go unpunished. That's why the propitiation was necessary. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus Himself and then delivered to us by those who heard Him speak? Meaning, eyewitnesses. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever He chose. He's saying, let's not drift This was written to an urban church. You'll find the term city more often in Hebrews than any other New Testament book. And these people had started to suffer because they were starting to follow Christ. And they were basically asking the questions, well, if we're doing the right thing, if we're going to be a joint heir with Christ, how come we're suffering so badly here? How come we're being persecuted? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, life is a journey. It's not a one and done deal. You can't just accept Christ and have the panacea of the ages take a pill and bang, I'm great, and now I'm good to go for the rest of time. Life on earth is going to be tough and it's a journey to get there, but we have to keep our eyes fixed on some future point in order to make it through the pain that's here. I'm going to use the illustration about the lawnmower, which Tom is the expert on, that uh, I've had the privilege of mowing a couple of times on our church property. And Tom had gotten some instruction and practice before I got on it, so he was already an expert by the time he trained me on it. It's one of those things that you pull the lever, and it goes... And you pull this lever, and it goes... And if you're not careful, and if you're really bouncing around on that thing, and if you pull it too quickly, you can really have a cedar point experience. (laughs) And the path that you mow might look a little bit circuitous. But he said... The guy told me that if you just find a nice comfortable place to rest your elbows and pull up just enough to get you going at the right speed and then just keep your arms there and just use one to adjust. Don't use them both to adjust by because it goes, wow, woo, yoo woo. Just use one and do small little corrections, mid-course corrections, and get an object way down in front of you that's a fixed point and keep your eye fixed on that point. And I thought, oh, man, that makes such a difference. All of a sudden, I started mowing quasi-straight lines. And you could go pretty quick until you hit some of those bumps, and then it kind of gets a little wonky. But the point of that is that Paul is basically... I say Paul. There's a discussion about who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, We've had, within our eldership, we've had some good discussions about that as well. We're not sure specifically who... Wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know who it was written to, and we know it was inspired by God, and that's good enough. So we're going to go with that. But the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Paul. <laughs> I'm using the bully pulpit to put my point across now. Now there there's some other really good candidates for who might have written that. There really are. He's saying we need to get a fixed point, and that fixed point is Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we'll drift. Just like I drifted out of that straight line when I was trying to mow, if we start listening to what the world is teaching us about all these other philosophies and the ways that we think that might try to make life better, we drift. He says, we don't want you to drift. We want you to stay firmly fixed on Jesus Christ because he's the way to keep you going all the way toward eternity. Kind of like Simon Peter, when he was uh, out on the lake, He was not mowing, he was actually just trying to row his way across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples got a little bit uh, wigged out, because one of them turned around and said, "Uh, I think something's coming toward us. And he said, I think maybe it's somebody, and they said, is it a ghost? They thought it was a ghost at first, and then finally Jesus is saying, be not afraid. He's doing that a lot in the New Testament, when people finally start to, be not afraid. And then Simon Peter, being the impetuous, brash guy that he is, says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. What is he thinking? And Jesus says simply, come. One word response. So Peter gets down, throws a leg over the side of the boat, throws the other leg over the side of the boat, and he starts walking on the water in the midst of this tempestuous storm. And as long as he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, he's all right. But it didn't take him very long before suddenly he started becoming aware of the winds and the waves and he starts to sink. Help! He cries out. Fortunately for us, however, just like with Simon Peter, even when we drift a little bit, even when we have taken our eyes off of Jesus Christ and we've started to drift and we're starting to get anxious or concerned or we forget that, oh yeah, we have a strong faith. God's going to get us through this. He's there to grab us and lift us right back up again. That's exactly what he did for Peter, and that's what he does for every believer, even if we start to drift or sink. The crowd in Capernaum, what was their response after Jesus had told that man, pick up your mat and go home? They praised God because they'd never seen anything quite like that. When Simon Peter got back in the boat with Jesus' help, all of a sudden the winds and the waves died down, and you know what their response was, the disciples? Wow, certainly he is the Son of God. They saw with their own eyes, and the Bible tells us as well that there are many, many more miracles that could have been written about, but it would take entire libraries to be able to fill up all the books it would take. Instead, those that were provided for us in this inspired word that we have as the Bible were there so that we can believe in Jesus' name, and by believing we can have life in His name. So there's enough there for us to have... Adequate evidence, eyewitness evidence that Jesus is God. God reveals spiritual truth to us, and we can't get there by reason alone. Don't you wish that he could have given us some sort of a, a translator so that we could understand him better? Because God some, sometimes feels like almost he's speaking a foreign language, and it's hard for us to understand. I told this story a long time ago. Uh, we had the wood stove in our basement back when we lived in a different house, and uh, we used to try to heat our home in the winter through some of that. Fortunately, at the time we got the squirrel in there, we were not burning a fire. But a squirrel got through because the little screen thing must have come off the top and, uh, of that vent. And so a squirrel got in there and must have had a real highfalutin ride down there. It would have been like Cedar Point for squirrels. <laughs> because it took a couple of bins before it finally actually got down into the stove itself. And our kids are the ones who told me, Dad, I think we've got something in our wood stove. I'm thinking... Oh, yeah, right, sure, it's probably just the wind. And I get down there, and I go, oh, well, sure enough. Yep, there's a squirrel in there. But what it didn't know was that I was trying to help it out. If it had known that, maybe it would have cooperated more. (laughs) But it thought that I was some sort of a fierce presence because I was so much bigger than it was, and so it was just smashing itself around in there, hurting itself, like a squirrel on espresso. (laughs) But wouldn't it have been great if I would have been able to speak squirrel? If I knew squirrel language, if I could have climbed in there with it and said, Hey, dude, what's up? So just so you'll know, this guy out there, I know he's a lot bigger than we are, but he's all right. He's with me. If you'll just cooperate and just walk into that little box he's holding out there, he's gonna take you safely outside and you get to crawl up that tree and go look for some more walnuts. So it's gonna be okay, just chill. Wouldn't it have been nice if we would have had that, if I'd had that ability? I didn't know how to speak squirrel. So all I could do was do everything I could to enter its world without scaring it completely off, but I wish it would have known that I was for it, I was not against it. It finally did crawl through the little hole in the cardboard box and we slid another piece of cardboard over the hole and I carried it gently out to the backyard, and it's free and happy and free at last. In fact, I think I heard it singing that on the way out into the yard. But here's the thing. Some people forget or, or they just don't know that God is for us. He's not against us. And He sent us a translator. He sent us Jesus Christ who spoke human He was human. He was fully human and yet fully divine so that we could understand what God was really like. And we can't get there completely by reason. Jesus Christ is the one who is telling all of His disciples that it's really because God reveals stuff to us that we can grasp it. He was out there near Caesarea Philippi. He was saying, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Others say maybe Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah. Some say the prophets. He said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, which means that you are equal with God. He got that. And then Jesus says to Peter, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I'm grateful, I'm really grateful that God works really hard to reveal stuff to me because, man, I can just be so thick at times. Sometimes I only speak the language of two by four. And I'm grateful that He is so gentle and humble that He will continue to whisper to me and show me through abundant evidence that He is the same as God. Jesus is the same as God. The disciples, as eyewitnesses, saw abundant evidence that Jesus was no ordinary man. People even pressed Jesus for an answer later in his ministry. And Jesus replied, he says, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. And then he says very clearly, he says, I and my Father are one. There were still some who didn't quite grasp that. But Jesus just made it so clear. And then there's one more evidence, and I love this one. I mentioned to you before that be listening for this because in the Old Testament when a prophet would speak, what would they say? Thus saith the Lord. That's right. They would say that with authority to let them know this is not my words. These are the words given to me by God. I'm supposed to pass them along to you. I'm the intermediary. You know what Jesus said? Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus never said thus saith the Lord. Why? He was the Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus did not leave us the option of being just a good teacher. I love this quote. I'm going to end with it because I think it's great. C.S. Lewis, his famous quote from the little book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say, says C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, to said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must left that option open to us. He did not intend to. (laughs) The logic is there for us through C.S. Lewis. Liar, lunatic, or Lord? I choose to accept him as Lord because of the abundant evidence. And oh, I trust that you have too. Let's pray. Father, Father, If it were left up to me to try to find my way to you, I'd never make it. But I'm grateful that Jesus was not just a prophet pointing the way so that we can know how to get to God. He was actually God getting to us. He was God coming down to our level, entering our world, translating from you what you needed us to know. And you're for us, you're not against us. And you desire what's best for us for eternity which is why you poured out your wrath against sin and your grace upon sinners all on the cross and all for our benefit. Oh, God, I pray that people will grasp that, not because we can reason our way there, but only because you reveal it to us through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I beg you to please draw people to yourself so that they can be embraced by you And be changed from the inside out because it's not about outward appearance. It's about transformation from you through the Spirit to be more and more like you until we can see you face to face for eternity one day. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.